Welcome to the More Exemplary Podcast, a study in joyful living. I'm your host, Nick Bogner, a marriage and family therapist practicing in Pasadena, California. In this podcast, I'm talking to some of my favorite professionals, both inside and outside the world of therapy, to learn how they cultivate happiness by accessing their own joy and enriching the lives of others. Thanks for coming along for the ride. I'm so glad you're with us. This week's interview is with Jen Fredette. Jen and I talked just before the holidays about the ways that we work with our clients to discover and strengthen contentment in their lives. Anytime I talk to Jen, I really enjoy hearing how insightful and interesting she is. Jen also took advantage of her fabulous voice to make a delightful podcast called A Scattered Tribe that I would highly recommend. I hope you enjoy the interview. Jen Fredette, welcome to More Exemplary. Thanks, Nick. It's good to be here. It's good to have you. So the general topic and the topic today is happiness and contentment. And one of the things I really like about you is your insight into things. And so I'm wondering what kind of insight um, you have for uh, me and for the world at large on this topic. Nick, you just gave me strong vibes. I sometimes have clients come into my office and I'm like, Jen, I'd like to talk about the meaning of my life. I'm just like, okay, dude, uh, where do you want to start? And happiness kind of feels that way. Like it's huge. Um, so you're asking like just my thoughts in general, or Honest, did you have the broadest question that I could possibly ask you, which is like, what is good and how do you get there? No, I, how do you find contentment and how do you help other people find contentment? So this is, I promise I will get to the point and I, I think this does relate. I was having this thought the other day as I was doing some work, um, to get business stuff and just thinking about the kinds of people I like to work with. And I ran across, of course, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And I got super twisted. I might have been avoiding doing real work. But I was like, this shit does not work. It is not a hierarchy. It's not like you get the base and then you're done and you no longer have to worry about shelter or whatever. And you just keep moving up the ladder. Really, it should be like on a YX axis and sort of a Venn diagram that you have to get all of these things met to get to self-actualization which I think is often what people are talking about when they talk about happiness is this sort of sense of like, I will get there and I'll know all the things I need to know. I'll have all the things I need to have of all the people in my life, which is really fucking hard to get to like in a week, which is often what people, they come in and like, I want to work on happiness. It's like, okay, that's a lifelong journey. Yeah. Let's talk about maybe where, where you're trapped right now. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And so, so what are the traps that you see most frequently for people? So particularly, I work with a lot of young professionals right now. And I think what gets people really trapped is thinking that there are rules to follow. That if I do A, B, and C, then I'll be happy. And then they get really stuck because they've done A, B, and C, and they're still not happy. Actually, they're less happy, less close to this kind of uh, nebulous thing. And so we really have to like dive in and talk about, well, okay, what is happiness actually for you? What does it smell like? What does it taste like? Like how, how do you experience it tangibly as opposed to just this concept in your mind? I, I hear you on the sort of bullshit rules that people feel like they need to follow. And I see it also in a way that I think prevents change from us at large in that people follow these rules and then they get angry when the people that come after them don't feel like they also need to follow those rules. There's like a resentment. Yeah. In my day, we did this thing in 10 years. It should take you 10 years to do it, damn it, not three. 
Yeah. Well, that that didn't serve you, and it won't serve these people either. Well, sometimes even the reverse is true. Well, it took me only a year to do this. Why is it taking you so long? What's wrong with you? Yeah. Um, I think about that whenever I read these BuzzFeed articles about how millennials are ruining such and such an industry with their love of avocado toast. Um, That, hey, we were here when we were your age. Why aren't you also here? Um, And it doesn't really take into context like how different generation to generation is, geographical location is. Um, And again, like my version of happiness might not be your version. And that's okay. Um, well, I also love when people don't, I, I love it. I'm being sarcastic here. I don't love it when people take it for granted that other people want to be unhappy. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you're just fucking up. And it's like, oh, well, do you, yeah, they, they just woke up today and said, I want to make the biggest fuck up of my life that I can and perpetuate my misery. Like no one wakes up and says that. Yes. Uh, and it bothers me when people take it for granted. Like, this is how you're doing it wrong. Yeah. So... I grew up um, pretty religiously and one of the concepts consistently was, oh, you think this makes you happy. Sort of like how I feel about Taco Bell now, like Taco Bell makes me happy in theory and definitely in the moment, maybe not so much a couple hours later. And so I grew up with this thought of like, oh, you think you're happy, but I actually have the true secret to eternal life or to um, the kind of life you ought to be living. And let me just really bug you until um, you agree with me. And I sometimes it's just kind of subtle, even um, it's not that I think you're miserable, but I sort of do. I just know you don't know yet. Right. This makes sense. Like the notion that you you don't know what the price is that you're going to pay for that Taco Bell. Yes. Yes. I think that actually happens quite a bit. Of people are just like, see, it back to avocado toast. You're spending all that money on avocado toast, and that is why you can't buy a house. And why aren't you buying my house, my gigantic, huge big mansion yeah. that, of course, everybody wants to live in? Sure. Um, I bought it in the seventies. It cost me eleven hundred dollars. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, so I got us off on a side trail, I think. But in terms of coming back to happiness and how do I help people figure that out and like what joy and contentment is, like I often ask them to go back to childhood, mm. which is such a therapist thing to do. Yeah. Um, but like, what are things that you enjoyed? Like, who did you dream of being oh. when you grew up? Um, where are some of the roots of things you might have actually left behind because they weren't um, cool enough or serious enough or ambitious enough. And it's really interesting to me for the people I know who are happy in certain areas of their lives, but there's almost always a real thorough line between what was happening in childhood and what is happening now. I've seen that line, but it's a different line when I see it. And it's, I love mm. that, that sort of lighter way of, of looking for things that people loved in childhood. I think I do the even more sort of stereotypical therapisty thing of looking for things that people hated in childhood and then you know, <laughs> focusing on healing from them. But I love that you're getting in touch with, uh, with the things that that little flame that might still be lit within people of stuff that they used mm-hmm. to love. Well, I think, and I definitely do the, like, let's talk about your mother and all of the terrible things that you may or may not have done to. You're mining. Uh, Yes. Um, And it's really painful to go into the past. And I think people are often really resistant 
to doing that. And so sometimes it's like, but there's a lot of really important data on both sides for us. And I'm loving actually that you're bringing in the painful stuff that might've gotten us sort of twisted to where we are now. Cause it's also my opinion that we can only really experience joy or happiness or contentment to the level that we're actually in touch with the pain part of us. My pain and pleasure really feel interwoven to me. That is so interesting. And I have never considered it that way. Can you tell me more? So I'm stealing um, some from the Sufi poet Rumi. Okay. Do you know him? Yeah. I the name. I don't know the poem. Oh, he's magical. I cannot remember the translation. Do I have it? I'll tell you after. Um, with the translation I have is really good. But there is a sort of reoccurring uh, motif in Rumi that we can only know the level of joy that our sorrow has carved. Mm-hmm. And there is something about pain that really clarifies what is real and actual and actually happening. And joy can do that too, but joy is something that is much easier to cultivate. I guess you could cultivate pain. Um, but when we get in touch with what is already painful, because life is a series of many traumas, even if you grew up with a great family in a higher income, rich country, as many of us do, there's still trauma because to be alive is traumatic. And the more we get in touch with what has cut us, what has started to open us up, then we can invite the beauty that goes with that. Not that trauma is a good thing, but there are gifts in it. Does this make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me uh, in a in a sort of funnier way of a, a band that I really like locally here uh, called the Sparkle Jets UK. And they have this song and one of the lines of it is, crap and rain make the flowers grow. And it's yes. this little, little cute song about how she just wants to write a nice song, but sad things keep coming up, but crap and rain make the flowers grow. And that's... Yeah. That's the truth. Yeah. I mean, fertilizer literally is shit. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Fuck fertilizer, right? I hate it. (laughs) Well, in order for fertilizer to work, in order for you to get to grow things, gardeners listening, please write into Nick and tell them how wrong I am. Um, But my sense, like you have to spread it around. You have to get your hands in it. Or if you have, fancy machine, but you have to like get in it to grow the thing. Um, whether it's something for nourishment like zucchinis or um, beautiful flowers, or uh, I know for grass now they have all sorts of crazy, pay somebody $60 to come spread stuff on our yard, but fertilizer at its core is waste. Yeah. Yeah. And it's only waste if we waste it. Ooh, that felt a little uh, small too, yeah. but. That's it. That's the title of the episode. And I'm going to put it in quotes and put your name in. That'll be... It's mostly bullshit from Jen. It's only waste if you waste. Did you... Have you ever been to Cracker Barrel, Nick? Oh, God. Yeah. A million times. I love it. Do you know... um, Yes. Also, Cracker Barrel is amazing. Uh, They're not sponsoring this podcast yet, but they may. One day. In the future. Um, You know those, like, uh, really schmaltzy cars that like are watercolors and they're like a long rectangle and they have those poems on them do you oh, know what I'm like for hanging on your wall and no, no, no. they're car they're cards you give your grandma oh, like okay. Okay. grandma cards 
Yeah, so you have to go to Cracker Barrel. They still, they've had these cards forever. They're awful. I don't know who buys them, except I used to buy them because I was like, this is deeply moving. These cliches of what a grandmother means and written in cursive. So I felt like I was just having a Cracker Barrel card moment. I don't know who makes those cards, but they're always in Cracker Barrel. Well, some, some Cracker Barrel millionaire makes those cards. And maybe that's a maybe that's a destiny for for one or both of us is to just yes. create small cliched moments for sale in the impulse buy section of a southern restaurant. I would. That's the dream, Nick. That's the dream. Um, I'll still do this because I love being a therapist. Sure. But man, actually, wasn't that what Five Hundred Days of Summer was about? I don't know. I didn't see it. Oh, it was about right promo cards. I am pretty sure Joseph, whatever his name was, and Zoe Deschanel worked at a greeting card company and like they made cards and like he deeply wanted to do well, but only like the schmaltzy stuff sold and he wanted to do snarky cards. I could be making some of that up, but it definitely was at a greeting card company. Yeah. Well, I actually have a funny Cracker Barrel story when, uh, you know, it was something that I deeply loved in college um, when I went to school in Virginia Uh and my uh, my roommate and I moved to California in 2002, um, mm-hmm. Virginia. She also was from Virginia. And we drove across the country and we got ready and we decided that we were really going to miss Cracker Barrel. And so since we knew or we had heard anyway, that there weren't any um, sort of west of the Mississippi, we were going to like make sure that we ate in Cracker Barrel uh, before we crossed the Mississippi River. And so we ate at the first one thinking it was the last one that we were going to see. And then, you know, we got to like Missouri and there was one there and we ate there. And we ate at Cracker Barrel a lot of times before finding out that the information about Cracker Barrel not being there was like totally erroneous. And I think they go as far as like Arizona. They might even be, I think they're in California now, but like it turns out you can just eat your way at Cracker Barrel almost across the entire country if you want to. I just, I don't even love Cracker Barrel food that much. Um, But the rocking chairs. I love that there's a gift shop full. Like I am secretly like 70 years old, like jigsaw puzzles, um, random crap that you don't know where you're going to put in your house. Mm -hmm. Um, and like shopping while you wait, like that's so fun to me. Yeah. Their hush puppies are really good though. Um, the, uh, the hash brown casserole, the cat. I've never had that. Oh, really? Oh, you got it. Again, referencing that I'm an old person, I order the same exact thing every time I go to Cracker Barrel. I want hush puppies and the um, breaded shrimp and mashed potatoes with gravy. That's what I'm going to get. And sweet tea. Although they're sweet tea. Sorry to shade them. Not the best sweet tea in the South. Who has the best sweet tea in the South? McDonald's. Or your grandma. If you have access to a grandma, she's going to have better sweet tea than McDonald's. McDonald's sweet tea is good. I I think it's, it's so important also to be in touch with things like this that, that give us joy, right? I mean, yes. and I think it's easy to take them for granted or to be, mm-hmm. you know, say, oh, it's a cliche. But, you know, if that is something that gives you joy, we all need that yes. on a regular basis. Do we not? I think so. And I was actually just thinking, of loving how you brought us back, um, that uh, for me... A lot of pleasure, contentment, joy in life is about really getting to be in it. And I think a lot of times people aren't in it. Uh, And I certainly am not. Like I had a doctor's appointment this morning 
And I was waiting and waiting. And I didn't have my phone because who knows when the doctor's going to come in. And of course, like you're wearing all the stuff. And I was like, oh man, what did I do before my phone? Well, this is what I did. I said, <laughs> doctor's office and felt uncomfortable mm-hmm. um and after about five or six minutes I was like oh that's right I used my imagination I played with ideas I thought about I did actually a lot of menu planning this morning because I love food and want to think about that but got to play inside as opposed to having to have this external thing that is flashing at me that is suggesting we're going to connect and I mean, we only know actually each other on the internet, but there is a kind of connection, but it's different than if we knew each other, I think, like sitting down in an actual room. Um, So I guess my point is, I think we find a lot of ways to avoid contentment. Certainly. Part of the path there is boredom. Yeah. And acceptance. Mm -hmm. We We have this wiring that we need always to be looking for more. Yeah. Um, and that, that if you're not looking for more that you're, you're dying or you're fucking up somehow. And that's just, that's such a crowded way of thinking. Yeah. It's hard though. I wonder if this changes over like the developmental time span. Mm-hmm. I sit with um, like my in-laws or with older folks who are no longer in like the collecting stage of life mm-hmm. in like the accumulation and um, watching them actually letting go of things seems like in some ways as pleasurable as it is sometimes to be collecting. Uh, my husband and I bought our first house this year. And so we're like slowly like feathering the nest. And as long as I don't pay attention to what I perceive other people are doing on social media or like Pinterest or whatever, I'm like, oh, this is really good. We're taking our time. We're going to we just got a love uh, seat for our fireplace room. Like, oh, it's coming and there's waiting for it and custom making it. And it's very exciting. Um, but it's important, I think, to go slow in either place. Um, I just diverted us a little bit, maybe because I'm trying to avoid acceptance. I'm yeah, we're now. accepting. What am I trying to avoid accepting? Well, no, what, what are you trying to avoid accepting? Oh, yeah, I was just repeating your question as a way to stall. True story, everybody. That's what therapists do when they go, hmm, it's a really good question. That's us stalling to think about how we're yeah. going to respond. Besides baseball here, for sure. Another one is is just repeating the question back as a precise question to that person. Well, well what, what are you doing to avoid? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That immediately makes me want to pull that out, but I'm not going to. (laughs) I think I consistently want to avoid slowness Um, and like sort of the accepting of what is, or for me, like boredom is slow. There's not immediately something to do because there is this sense of um, if I don't go quicker, I'm going to miss out. Or I, because I'm always about 10 years behind in pop culture, just listened to the Hamilton soundtrack earlier this oh, week. Yeah. This shit ripped my heart out. It was good, huh? It was really good. Also, I'm really tired. So it might've been like, oh, this really, I was like sobbing at the end of the two hour thing. Yeah, like, no, man, you could be wide awake and be blown <sighs> this thing. It was 
it was really good. But my point in bringing that in was there's that song um, nonstop. Mm-hmm. And there's this line of like, what, why are you writing? Like you're running out of time. Like what, why, why are you doing this? And of course the implication, cause we all know what's going to happen at the end. Spoiler for everybody. It's been out for over a decade. Um, Hamilton dies at the end. Um, and so there's a sense of like, you're doing this. You don't really fully realize it um, because you're going to die. Mm-hmm. And there is that avoidance of death which is, I think, this kind of consistent, like this avoidance of loss, the avoidance of the end. And so if I just kind of keep adding, if I just have to keep accumulating or keep working, 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 Mm -hmm. then whatever the relationship is or whatever the experience is, doesn't have to end. Yeah. Yeah. And you can convince yourself that you're you're building, which would be the opposite of dying, right? That you're going up the mountain instead of down. Yes. Except, I mean, we all are dying every single day. Sure. All those characters in Hamilton died eventually. They, the musical didn't cover it all, but all those people are dead. I was torn, like both. So this is again, another side note. We've been watching Baby Yoda, okay. AKA the Mandalorian. Yeah. I understand Baby Yoda is a merchandising scam. <laughs> I understand it's like Disney, like I don't, I love that baby Yoda so fucking much. Like he's the cutest thing I've ever seen. But I, so somebody posted a baby Yoda song, which was actually a cover of Dear Theodosia, Theodosia, whatever the song is in Hamilton. And it was so moving. I was like, yes, Manda will always come back for you, Yoda. Like it's going to be okay. I don't understand anything that's going on in the Star Wars universe, even though I've seen most of the movies, Um, but you're going to be all right. And that this is why I decided to listen to the soundtrack. But to add into all of that, I think that's also a very strong reaction because I feel very attached and very concerned for Baby Yoda. Yeah. And somehow Baby Yoda became overlaid with Aaron Burr and Hamilton's children, and they both died. And I was like, this is Baby so hard. Baby Yoda doesn't die. Oh, okay. Philip dies. Oh. Hamilton's son in a duel. Mm. Then he does what his dad tells him to do. And then Theodosia doesn't die in the play, but she's lost at sea. Mm. And we don't know what happens to her. Um, That's in real life, not in the play. But I don't know why I'm talking about children dying. I'm not sure how I got here. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, sometimes conversations are just going to go where they're going to go. We were talking about the, um, we were talking about Avoiding, maybe this is what we're doing collectively, avoiding um, patience or boredom with things in order to avoid the idea of going downhill into one's demise. Yes. And I realized too, I just went to wanting to protect small, innocent beings as a way to avoid talking about death, which is, I can't remember, it's earnest. Becker, I'm not sure. There's a famous existential, I don't know if he's a psychotherapist or a philosopher or both, mm-hmm. but he talks about there's like four or five different ways that humans collectively routinely avoid the idea of death. And it's here's how I'll live on through my children or mm-hmm. through something I create or like through notoriety or fame. I don't remember all of them. Um, but how we all collectively really want to avoid that we're going to die. Yeah. But you could also live your whole life for that legacy and not for the Cracker Bell visits 
Yes. In episodes of Baby Baby Yoda. Yes. And the question is, like, what does it then mean to actually live? Um, And does that change from person to person, or is there one universal truth? Um, Which comes back to people think there are rules of what it means to be happy or not be happy. It's all a circle. (laughs) Really? Ultimately, right? Yes. So, yeah. No, no, you go ahead. No, your turn. I'm going to be on this podcast forever. That's true. Well... We're talking about death, Vic. You can't be on the podcast forever because you too will die. Um, unless the religion of my childhood is correct and we will all get raptured. Oh, shit. And then we get to live forever. However, that doesn't necessarily sound like a super great deal because we just stand around and worship Jesus yeah, for like, the rest of eternity. Okay. Oh. So I... I don't know exactly what that's supposed to look like. I always envisioned it as like Jesus was singing the national anthem at like a ballpark and we're just all watching him <laughs> forever. And being like, you're doing so great, Jesus. Congratulations. Um, this is, needs that kind of adulation in order to really best. This is a side note, but the more I'm in the DC metro area, but the more all of this Trump stuff plays out, the more I'm like, oh my gosh, this was the Jesus I grew up with. This is who we thought Jesus was supposed to be. Somebody who consistently needed to be petted and stroked and appreciated and um, would get really hurt or sad or be disappointed or get really mad if we didn't like follow whatever he wanted us to do. Like an Uh, infant Jesus that needed us to parent him all the time? Yes, oh. with a lot of volcanic rage. Um, okay. That's more. This may be more about the president than Jesus. I might be overlaying that. But well, yeah, but you're talking about a you know that version of the Jesus. Yeah, which is unfortunate because the version of the Jesus in the Gospels, like I particularly like. Yeah. I he's Gospel of Mark for um, Bible people. He's the best. He's super cranky. He's always taking retreats. He does not really enjoy a lot of the people around him. He talks a lot of shit. Mm. I like that Jesus. Um, John's a little airy fairy. Um, no offense to John, but he's sort of a little more Joel Osteen kind of mm-hmm. Jesus. Got it. Not as positive as Joel, but anyhow, that's the evangelical deep cut for everybody today. <laughs> <laughs> I think what I was going to say before I got on a train about Jesus and Trump was you started off by asking me, like, what do I do to help people with this? Yeah. And I just want to reflect that I often have kind of a more existential um, kind of conversation like we've been having with plenty of level levity and humor. Because ultimately, I can't tell somebody else what's going to make them happy. I don't have the magical secret answer. However, I'm pretty good and helping people start to uncover the layers of yeah. what, what is it that you actually are missing. And sometimes it is something that is so concrete and so easy to change. Um, in my own life, I was thinking about this today, I drive a Prius and I've been driving it, it's like 10 years old, I've been driving it five or six years. And my beeper stopped working about a year and a half ago. You and I just... Mm-hmm. And with a Prius too, like you can just, I don't really understand how this works, but if you walk up close enough and the keys in your pocket, you just open the door. Yeah. And it's magical and really cool. And I love it. 
Um, and then you can just press the on button. You don't have to put the key in the ignition or anything. But about maybe even almost two years ago, my key stopped working like that. And it has like the emergency key that you can turn and like open the lock and then you have to put in the ignition. It still works, but it doesn't have this fancy other stuff. And I just accepted that that was going to be what was. This is this is my life now. Someday I'll get a new car and I'll be able to beep it open again. I don't know. I think I had made it up like, oh, I'll have to get a new key. That's a lot of work. I don't want to go to the dealership. It's a used car. Like, blah, blah, blah. Turns out that shit cost me $2 what? and 10 minutes because you just have to replace the battery. Oh, and you, my like, God. Like, get a little screwdriver. Yeah, um, say that again? I said, give me three of them. Yeah. Like, it was super easy. And it took me saying, this is not good enough for me anymore. I don't want to have to always take this out and then be scared that somebody's going to, like, try to kidnap me in the garage or whatever and, like, struggling with my key to go really yeah. fast. It came from my discontentment that I made a change that brings me pleasure every day. I love that. Can I ask you, what do you think keeps people from saying this isn't good enough for me anymore? Because consistently I hear people not asking, not making that statement in a, at times that it seems to me that it would be plainly obvious for them to do it. I think lots of things. I think part of it, it goes back to avoiding feeling. Um, I was like, well, this is really that not that big of a deal. So minimizing that mm. this is not a big deal and not recognizing how it piles up over time. Mm. Okay, so even very small changes make a huge difference. And you know this because we've been talking about I want to not have the commute that I have, yeah. which is actually going to be it. The more I think about it, I'm like, oh, this is going to be a huge change. Yes. I I would have time to go in Starbucks and drink my tea before going to the office with the amount of time I commute. Um, Won't that be something? So exciting. But it took actually moving just essentially five miles more to like stretch and be like, oh, this is actually really painful. I don't like doing this. It was only five more miles, really only more like seven and a half extra minutes in my commute which isn't that much. And sometimes if we can really go in to whatever it is and like really get in it, it helps us say, this is not enough. Like this is not what I want, but we really have to go into the thing. Um, I also think anger is really helpful. Mm -hmm. These kinds of things. Cause I, the elevator in my parking garage at work, it has been broken off and on. And so I have to walk down three stairs I just three, get like the three flights of stairs because one of them three, makes me feel bad and one of them does not. Three flights of stairs. Okay. Um, which it's not the walking down the stairs is fine, but I become convinced that there's a boogeyman like at the round every corner. This comes from listening to too much true crime and also the episode um, on the Sopranos where the therapist like gets attacked in the parking garage. Yeah. Well, and also, like, attacks in parking garages on women happen. That's yeah. not the boogeyman level supernatural thing, right? This is true. This is true. This is also why it'll be great to leave my current office eventually. Um, I won't have to park in that parking garage anymore. Um, so I just was so frustrated and then was like, ah, and then when I finally get, like, I can't get into my car enough. I was like, this fucking pisses me off. I need to send them an email. I didn't send them an email. I should have done that, but I did not do that. You lit I, the like, place on fire. 
Ford gasoline, no? Okay. Well, what. I was just thinking, could I do that? Would I have the balls to commit arson in my parking garage? <laughs> Probably not. Um, also, I share my parking garage with the FDIC. Oh. Um, so it is also like monitored and like it's security passed and what I have to show my ID every time I go in. So it is still, yes, not a total boogeyman, but a little kind of a boogeyman. Like it's yeah. barely safe on the level of parking garages. This is a long story to make the point of sometimes getting angry. Like this isn't okay. I need to do something about this. Like anger can move us towards whatever it might be. What do you think? I, I'm loving getting these perspectives from you because I I'm really enjoying all of them. And they are also really different from the ones that I have. And I'll say that I think yeah. maybe because the bulk of my work is with men um, I spend a lot of time doing work on like anger isn't necessarily very helpful for us. Uh, and so I have a way of conceptualizing it as sort of a, like a um, vestigial um, sort of primitive thing that used to help us in times when we really needed that anger in order to like get out of violent situations or to protect ourselves or our loved ones. But that in, you know, 2019 slash 2020, rarely are we called on to, to like, to, to be enraged. And I realize that you're talking about a very different kind of anger. And I guess I'm talking about anger as it turns into like tantruming at people or being violent or um, being unreasonable or insulting. And you're talking about like the kind of motivational anger that says, no, God damn it. I'm not walking down three flights of stairs when we have an elevator here. Somebody needs to fix the fucking thing, right? Yeah, I'm actually, I'm just thinking about, um, well, what is it I think anger is? Because what you were just describing to me is like, an unhelpful container for anger mm. that I think is often given to men and tears. I think are this for women mm. that it's like the container itself is not necessarily terrible. And we all have anger. We all have sadness that we need to express. Um, but the container isn't, um, isn't as helpful kind of across the board, but the underlying emotion is really important mm -hmm. And it was just sort of thinking, I work, curious, I wonder why this might be, but most of the men I work with are fairly passive mm. and very concerned about being assholes. And so shy away from anger and it can be very diplomatic, very thoughtful, don't want to take up a lot of space. Like that's their kind of piece. And I'm always like, I, I would love for you to get pissed off. Yeah. Like, dude, that's not okay that that person said that to you. and. But they're so worried, like, if I have appropriate show of anger, mm. I'm really going to be diminished. Um, I'm just going to be like every other asshole. And it's complicated. Yeah. It's also like a woman, if I cry because I'm so overwhelmed in a meeting, I'm really going to be diminished. Right. Um, and that... And that really happens, even though that feels like a less appropriate thing. I've had to, I've had discussions with male clients because that's something that somebody obviously had to explain to me is like that there's actually a language that is male normative in the workplace. Um, and there's this notion, and I would have said for years, yeah, if you cry in a meeting, what the fuck are you doing? And it's like, well, no, actually, it's really superhuman to cry. Yes. And, you know, it might just be something that you learned a long time not to do, you know. Yes. Yes. Maybe it would be good for you to cry in a meeting. I haven't had to yet, um, but I'm taking a lot fewer meetings than I used to. So that might be part of it too. <laughs> we can take a meeting sometime, Nick. Um, exactly. And do some tear mining. 
So you pull it out of me, right? I used to have a horrible joke that I would, of course, tell clients because I, um, this is pretty close to who I am in session, a little less chatty, but I'd be like, look, they're like, I'm sorry, I'm crying. I'm like, no, dude, I like to go home. Do you know what I like to tell my husband? I'm like, what? I'm like, eight out of eight, motherfucker. <laughs> and then, do you know what he says to me? And they're like, what? Because they're still like not totally there. I'm like, they say, Jen, you were so sick. Why are you making all those people cry? And it's just like, that's what you're supposed to do with therapy. You're supposed to have feelings. Yeah. You can express them through um, tears. You can express them. Uh, men, in general, don't express them through temper with me very much. Mm-hmm. Although I'll be really proud of myself when I can hold that with men. Because mm-hmm. that feels really important too. Um, but I got us a little off track. Because you were telling me with men, a lot of the work you do around anger it sounds as like helping them contain. Well, not contain so much. It's actually the opposite. Um, um, it's more saying, I'll give you the the sort of uh, intervention explanation that I use with clients of, of all genders, mm-hmm. which is I say, so, you know, thousands of years ago, if you were living in a cave with your family and you went out and you killed a tiger, you brought mm-hmm. it home and you were spit roasting it, um, just heating it up and you could smell that tiger meat and you were super excited because you and your family were going to have tiger meat to eat. And then a mm-hmm. dude comes over from the next cave and he clubs you in the back of the head and takes your tiger. You're probably feeling um, a lot of fear and pain. You're feeling mm-hmm. pain because you've been betrayed by this person. You're feeling physical pain. You're mm-hmm. feeling the loss of this tiger that you had. And you're probably feeling fear, right? Like um, I'm not safe in my home. If I go out and try to kill another tiger, am I going to get killed doing it? Is my baby going to starve to death? And so you have this fear and this pain and those things do nothing for you in the cave. Like they don't help you. All they do is make you miserable. But if you can turn those into anger, then you go to the next cave and you club that fucking guy with a club and you get your tiger back and your life gets back on track. And so in those moments, having that anger really served you. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's a human thing to synthesize uh, fear and or pain into anger. But in Mm -hmm. 2019, you don't need to club anybody almost all the time. So it's, it's more helpful to say, is it fear or pain or both? Mm-hmm. And then you get in touch with that and then work on remedying whatever that is. So it's not so much like contain it. It's more like get underneath it and see what the real thing is and then take care of yourself that way. Yeah. What do you do? Like, how do you help people find release from whatever it might be, whether it's fear or anger or pain? I, I think it's a little different for each person and a little different for each fear or pain. You know, mm-hmm. some fears are really reasonable and some mm-hmm. fears are really not reasonable. Um, so that's part of it. And, um, you know, pain, some pains are physical, some pains are betrayal, some pains, you know, it, it really depends. Uh, the thing that I would say I most consistently tell people is you don't have to be there. Like you can, you can actually leave that situation for as long as you want to. And I think that's a, a, a bullshit rule that we have for ourselves. It's like, I have to be there until this thing is over. If somebody asks me for an answer, I have to give it. I have to respond to this thing. And the answer is no, actually, everyone else is on your schedule. You're not on theirs. Mm. I mean, almost all the time. So I don't know. It's like an imperfect answer, but I feel like that's the most blanket thing is like in that moment, you just, you remove yourself and take care of yourself. Yeah. It's really interesting because I know... Here's my projection on you, Nick. You can tell me if it's wrong. Um, My sense is you're somebody who really deeply thinks about things. Um, So thinking might come first and feeling like comes up. But like, you you kind of feel like a mastermind to me. Like, there's many parts and like, here's how these things fit together. I don't know if that's true or not. It's my projection. Uh, It's a projection I love. I don't know if it's right or not either, but I'll take it. 
you could take it, take it to therapy and ask your therapist and they'll be like, no, that's bullshit. (laughs) But my therapist would say, although when I told her, I was like, somebody told me I was charming. She's like, yeah. How did you not know that? I was like, I didn't know it though. I was so excited. I went around and told everybody, I was like, did you know that I'm charming? And they're like, yes. I was like, I didn't know. And I want to tell everybody. Uh, This is a revelation. I have this thought. I love that. What a comforting revelation. It was very delightful. But my point of this was, so that's my projection on you. And like, I think I operate first through feeling Mm. and then I come up with thoughts for it, which is why I think I come up with all these crazy metaphors because I'm like trying to pull from like, what does this feeling feel like? It feels like eating a kiwi and then having a glass of white wine and trying to figure out if the kiwi is in the glass of white wine. Um, Not verbal, verbal. Yes. And so I was just thinking of like, oh, it's really interesting we have these different styles because my my go-to for myself and often my work with clients is let's figure out how to help you bring up the emotion Mm -hmm. and feel into it and then find words for it. And what I'm hearing you say is, yeah, and sometimes you can like take a break and walk away and you can come back later and like, oh, fuck, I need to do more of that. Yeah. yeah, and I, I think it's really helpful, especially if you are a person, and many men are, and I still am to a certain degree, who really struggles to know what the feeling is and when it's happening. Like the notion of getting in touch with that and, and naming it. Uh, something I share with clients pretty frequently is that I know that my self-esteem is in trouble if I go into road rage. And, mm. and that's like actually these days, the first signal I have that something is going wrong with my self-esteem is I'm behind the wheel and I go, what the fuck is this dude's problem? And it's, and that's my, that's a flag. It's like, yeah. oh, your self-esteem, something's happening there. And I've known that before any somatic thing, before any thoughts or feelings come up, that's yeah. my first indicator. Yeah. It, like your outward expression. That um, particular outward expression. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you find that's true? Because it sounds like, especially with your work with men, it's okay. You don't need to make that outward expression. We can slow the train down and look yeah. at these things in detail. Yeah. Well, because a lot of times men are in my room because they don't want to make that outward expression anymore. I mean, I don't yeah. do like anger management work. I have friends that do that. But mm-hmm. like, but it, I think it's a really commonplace experience when you've learned to sort of dull away your feelings for so many years, which is mm-hmm. how we raise men to be, um, mm-hmm. that then they come up and what you have is a, a bunch of behaviors that don't really help you and that you feel helpless to control, but ultimately you want to control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm thinking how anger in a lot of ways is one of the only okay emotions for white men. Um, And I've just, I've been working with some men of color over the past few years and like how tricky anger is woven into race as well as gender. And then like, so men don't cry, but black men better not get angry because that not go well and then there's like no outlet for any of that um or at least not these kind of main roads that most people have something to walk down so that's actually a a really interesting point to make and i'm glad that you did because i had a, a supervisor years ago who said um you know men can feel three things fine awesome or pissed um and i I think that I've found that to be the case and I've used that, but it's really true. The rules are very different for, for non-white people, for people of color. Yeah. Um, and that's something I can lose sight of. It's a helpful thing to remember. Yeah. There's so many rules about who's allowed to feel what, um, but we all feel these things like they're core emotions. 
there's um theorists that I really like, Robert Pluchak, Pluchark, something like that. He's a psychoevolutionary biologist. And he has this lotus of emotions. And what I love is it's each petal is one of the core emotions. And so you have sort of the moderate normal uh basic response. So it could be joy. And then the uh like on the end of that is sort of the milder aversion. I'm trying to think for joy, I think it's like I should have picked one I would remember. Mm. So sadness, I think, is disappointment, is on the the kind of far end of the pedal. And then the closer to the core, you get the more intense the expression. So for sadness, um, I think it's grief. And so like really intense. For joy, it's ecstasy. Mm. Uh, for anger, it's rage. And what's interesting, actually, for anger is on the end of it is, um, I want to say it's boredom. And so there's this sense of like, I got to look this up because I might be getting it a little bit wrong, but the, we have these mild expressions of emotions that sometimes we give ourselves space to have because it's harder to feel into the intense expression of whatever it might be, but you got to get to the core yeah. if you want to feel like they're really super awesome, intense, wonderful emotions and the shitty ones too. Right. The crap and rain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Jen, I'm so delighted that you've joined me here today. Thank you for making time for for me and for this podcast and for the people that will listen to it. I want to make sure because I have a lot of uh, wonderful friends and family in the Virginia, Maryland, D.C. area um, where I grew up who might really benefit from the wonderful things that you have to offer. So would you tell us where uh, on the web we could find you uh, and some contact information and what people should come to you? hoping to work through so i am a lover of buying domains but currently <laughs> uh you could find me at jenfordettlpc.com i think actually i own jenfordette.com and it sends that to the, the same website so you can find me there um i currently see clients in arlington virginia in the boston uh, metro area super fun although like i was talking about before occurred to me that I don't have to have such a long commute. And if you're in the DMV, I know you support me in that. Uh, so I'm getting ready to move my practice over the next year or so to the Columbia, Maryland-esque area. Um, if you're looking for a therapist or you're scared to start looking, just give me a holler, even if we're not a fit. Like I would love to talk to you about really good people in the area. What I've found is sometimes when there's a 20 billion choices, can be really overwhelming and like really bad dating to be like swiping through psych today. Like who will be a match? Who will be a match? Who will be a match? So I'm always happy to help people find someone. And if I am that someone, that's delightful too. Um, So that's where people can find me. I particularly like people who are really deep thinkers Mm -hmm. who struggle to feel their feelings and often are stuck in places they thought they wanted to be. But once they've gotten there, it's just not that appealing. Those are my favorites. Also people who like to drop the F-bomb. Um, that's really fun too. Nice. Yeah, you swore less than you warned me you were going to over the course of the day. If I, had one, if I have one note for you, I loved your participation today, but I felt like there was a little bit of false advertising about how much cursing it was going to be. Oh, fuck, Nick. And I think I only really said fucking shit. Um, yeah, you didn't when, put it in the creative ones. 
no, I have this thing. I'm not going to drop all of them because maybe I'm a little wary because you're still you're, you're easing it's into the right podcasting right. game. But when I get really angry, I like to say all of the swear words I know. And my current favorite is you bollocks cunt. I want to fuck you up. Normally to my car door because I've accidentally hit my leg on it. So that's how I like to express my anger. Um, not surprising to anybody who knows me. Uh, well, yeah. so so if you're listening to this and you've heard how much fun I've had talking to Jen today, you can have this much fun unless you are a car door. That's so true. I highly recommend that you uh, find her at, at jenfordetlpc.com. Yes. Um, and Jen, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Nick. That's it for this episode of the More Exemplary Podcast. If you'd like to have a question answered on the More Exemplary Podcast, please send an email to moreexemplary at gmail.com. If you're interested in transforming your life, whether it's romantically, professionally, historically, or any other way through psychotherapy, please visit me at www.nickbognertherapy.com. If you love this podcast, please tell all your friends about it. And if you don't have any friends, then please tell some strangers about it in a not creepy way. Subscribing and leaving positive reviews helps me to be able to make more episodes of this podcast. And if you're still listening at this point, then I suspect you've fallen asleep with your earbuds in. Sleep well, and I can't wait to join you for the next episode of the More Exemplary Podcast. <laughs>